Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is 30 minutes of science, some of, well, I dare say, the best, the most comprehensive, the most entertaining science that you're going to hear on your radio this week, because of course you are with us, Um, and who are we? Well, my name is Claire, and I have with me the usual suspects, Chris and Stu. Hello. 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 (laughs) Um, you two have brought stories for us this week, haven't you, for our dear listeners? I hope so. <laughs> well, well, Chris, let's do more than hope. Let's tell okay. them all about what you're going to be talking about. Claire, this week I am going to be talking about dolphins. Dolphins? Dolphins. <gasps> okay. You know, the way to my heart is uh, a dolphin story, so go on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're like, what are they, the, the chimps of the sea or something? Yeah. No, not okay. really. I don't, I, don't, no. I don't think anyone's ever said no, that. No, I don't but... think anyone's ever said that. No, yeah. because they're very smart, though. We, we all know that dolphins are you know, especially oh, very, very smart. smart. Yeah. They can do lots of clever things, not just tricks with hoops. I was reading a thing today about how they can self-medicate with sponges, which is interesting. Oh, yes. I did read about that, that they rub up yeah, yeah. against certain certain anemones and sponges to sort of yeah, have yeah. an analgesic effect. Yeah, maybe for skin infections, that sort of stuff. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about. So oh, I'm just okay. covering that. Yeah, yeah. What I'm talking about is that, you know, dolphins also have names. Really? They do have names. Flipper. They're <laughs> yes. all called Flipper. They're, they're not all called Flipper, Stu. Uh, oh. Any aquarium would know that. No, but they have their own names. Not just the names that we give them, the cute names we give them. They have their own names. They're... Um, distinctive whistles that they use to identify themselves. I guess, you know, if you're thinking about the TV show Flipper, Flipper kind of made that <laughs> noise. Maybe you could do it better, Claire. Um, okay. But yeah, they they use these high-pitched whistles to identify themselves. They also apparently, they taste urine to identify each other, which may be a less kind of appealing thing. But there was a recent study that I want to talk about that showed how they can identify using both sound and taste and how the, the way that they do this reveals something about the, the way that they can understand and communicate concepts wow oh well i cannot wait to i do love a good animal communication story so i can't wait to hear that one chris and Stu, what have you got for us this week more animal communication or are you taking a different path i'm definitely taking a different path i'm going to talk a little bit about the idea of overpopulation because that does come up every once in a while. I sort of was going to look at it in terms of uh, if there's, you know, a scientific basis for the concept of human overpopulation on Earth, uh, or whether people sort of try and apply things from from other fields of science mm-hmm. uh, to show that this is a problem. And, and I've heard people say that, you know, uh, human population growth is the elephant in the room uh, when it comes to ecological and environmental issues. I mean, that suggests that people aren't talking about it. I would suggest that, no, 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 we're talking about it all the time. And a lot of people are sort of have different ideas and it's a bit of a debate that's been ongoing for quite some time if you look back at the history of it. Uh, at least 
at least 200 years people have been trying to push this idea that we're on the brink of a human collapse because of how many people there are. And I'm going to look at why that hasn't happened and why it probably isn't likely to happen the way some people think it is anyway. Brilliant. So communicating dolphins and whether overpopulation has a scientific basis there must be a segue between those two stories. I don't know, maybe dolphins taking over the world. I love The Simpsons. Um, well, I thought I thought they would just leave because they were smarter than us, but, you know, that's more like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> that's yeah. right, that's right. Uh, well, for all the Simpsons and Hitchhiker's fans out there and everybody else wanting to know a little bit more science, on with the show. Alright, so I am talking about dolphins. Unfortunately, I'm not talking to dolphins. Um, I've often wondered what it would be like to talk to dolphins. I'm sure you have too, Claire. Sure. I'm sure all of us have had some Dr. Doolittle fantasies in our life. Oh yeah, I've, I've had a bit of Dr. Do Nothing in my life. But, um, <laughs> you know, I guess there's efforts to talk to dolphins. I mean, people try to kind of teach them communication but they obviously have their own ways of communicating it turns out their communication has some things in common with us but in other ways they are very different shall we say so we'll take their names for example so dolphins have long been observed to have their own unique whistles uh, which they often use when they're separated from their group or i believe it's a pod of dolphins is that correct that's correct and what they do is when they um when they are separated what they do is they call out their own name their own whistle repeatedly which is kind of different to the way we would do it like if you were separated from a group you would probably call out the name of someone in the group but they kind of call out their own name and then the other sort of find them and call back to them sort of thing sort of seems a bit smarter doesn't it It does actually seem a bit smarter it makes a lot of sense doesn't it but can you imagine doing that if you get separated next time you're with a group of friends just yell out claire 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 See what happens. See what happens. I think that's what dogs are doing as well, but they've just all got the same name, so you can't tell. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's funny you should mention that. So yeah, so these whistles they are of their way of um, identifying themselves, and they can actually recognise each other very well with them. There's been some tests that show that they can recognise individuals they haven't seen for over twenty years by playing their whistles back at them. The thing, interesting thing about the whistles, um, one of the interesting things is that it is very different to, say, other calls, like, say, from dogs. Uh, a lot of animals can recognise their compatriots by the noises they make, but it's often by the sound of their voice. You know, we all have unique voices, um, and it's a pretty basic way of identifying. That's how we identify, I guess, individuals. You know, we don't identify them by the words they're saying, necessarily, but by um, the sound of their voice. Um, and that would, I would imagine that dogs would do something fairly similar. But dolphins doesn't work quite that way because they don't kind of have a defined sound of their voice because they swim in the ocean and depending on how deep they are, um, the different densities of water or pressures and that sort of thing, their voice is going to sound different. So instead they have these more complex um, whistles that they use to, to, be, to identify themselves. Now, um, do you want to hear what they sound like? Yes, please. Okay, I've found, got something I found from a website called um, Discovery of Sound in the Sea. Here is one. This is actually a dolphin repeating a fairly simple whistle. It's very high pitched, so maybe not everyone will be able to hear it. 
Anyway, um, here's a more slightly more complicated one that maybe you'll be able to hear a bit better. I'll play that one again for you there. Wow, yeah, they are very high-pitched, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So um, they're not actually whistles as such, it turns out. They're, they are kind of, you know, you produce things like vocal cords, but only in the nasal cavity instead of in the in the throat, like for us. But yeah, they're very high-pitched, and it's, a, it's the shape of the sound, I suppose, the, you know, the way it goes up and down, that sort of thing, and the speed and this sort of stuff, that is the unique pattern, as opposed to, yeah, like I said, the actual sound of their voice. But as I said in the introduction, that is not all they use. Um, the other form of identification um, it may be considered, I suppose, in poor taste to some. So it was observed many years ago that dolphins swim through plumes of urine with their mouths open, <laughs> um, which is kind of quite surprising. And this sort of led to the realisation that they're deliberately tasting the urine that they're swimming through. Just to bring up dogs again, I mean, dogs and cats as well sniff each other's urine. There's no way to, to smell things in the ocean except by sort of tasting the water that, that it's in. So it's really not that different from, from what land mammals do. No, except, of course, as you said, it's adapted to the ocean as well. And what's yeah. really interesting is it is definitely taste, not smell. Um, so, you know, when we taste things, um, you, know, you, you put it the end of dogs and cats, obviously smelling urine. When we taste things, as you know, a lot of the flavour comes through the smell rather than mm. taste because the taste buds are fairly limited. But dolphins don't actually have a sense of smell. Their noses have essentially just been repurposed for the blowhole. So they don't have basically have uh, olfactory sense at all. And in fact, they've actually lost a lot of their taste buds even. So um, they generally swallow fish whole, so they don't need to taste too much for a food purpose. They've, they've, the only taste buds, or the main ones that we have that have remaining, is the taste of salt. Not all so, that useful in the ocean, you would think, to just be able but, to taste salt. It well, doesn't really... They, clearly. But the thing is, apart from the main taste buds, it's, it seems to be the other smaller taste receptors that maybe you're a bit more fine-tuned, and that could be a pit used for this identification purpose. I've got to say, this is not exactly known how they're doing this. There are certain kind of theories about more complex forms of taste that we possibly share and that maybe other animals related to dolphins may have as well. But uh, yeah, look, it's not exactly known how they do it precisely. But this latest study, this was published in the journal Science Advances, Jason Bruck and colleagues from St. Andrews University in Scotland studied combinations of whistles and urine to see how this identification system worked. Now, I should say the dolphins weren't Scottish dolphins. They went to Hawaii and Bermuda to, um, to actually see bottlenose dolphins. Yeah, they studied combinations of whistles and urine, these researchers from Scotland, and the dolphins, like I said, they weren't Scottish. They, were, they went to Hawaii and Bermuda to obtain dolphins. I mean, if you, if you were going to do a study on dolphins and you could get the grant money to go to Hawaii and Bermuda, you definitely would, I think. Well, yeah, okay, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> so what they found is they tried different combinations of vocalisations and urine. They found that the dolphins responded better and took much more interest when they presented with matching whistles and urine from known individuals, which will show that both were being used for identification, but showed that the combination they were like, okay, this is definitely the dolphin that I know. Which is kind of, I guess, confirming that these both methods are used, but it actually tells us something about the way that the whistles work. So, because the urine um, is just something produced, it's a direct chemical signature produced automatically by the dolphin. But the whistle is something 
it's a sound, it's a pattern that the dolphin itself has created. So remember, it's just not the voice. It's not actually the sound of the voice. You know, we all have our unique voice that we're kind of, we're born with or that we, um, we develop. Um, but this is the pattern that they have learnt over time. So, and this is why the researchers are proposing that this is the first example of animals using a label to identify a concept. Because you have a pattern of sound, you have a name essentially that is connected with a specific individual. It's not a inherent trait of that individual, it's mm. something that is, can be repeated. Because, um, as I said, they call out their name when they're separated for the group. And sometimes the other dolphins will respond with a version of their name called back to them. Mm. Not exactly the same, but they will kind of copy it a little bit. So it's a, it's a pattern that other dolphins can repeat as well. This is fascinating. Um, there's a lot more still to learn, obviously. I've got to learn whether the actual whistles mean anything, whether there's any structure to them at all. And also, it'd be interesting to know whether any other animals do the same thing. So it's kind of known that uh, crows, particularly, and, you know, other corvids, um, have some distinct calls, but much less is known about how they use them. Like, dolphins have been a bit easy to study for these purposes. So, yeah, but wouldn't be surprised if some birds and other animals perhaps had the same kind of um, method. But look, in the meantime, though, I suppose it is good to know that the sounds dolphins make, um, they are communicating. It's not just random whistles, that they are communicating with porpoise. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful, radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. I know, Claire, you've studied a bit of ecology in your time. Yeah, sure. And yeah. Uh, I've, I've certainly read my share of ecology papers. And one of the big subject areas within ecology is population dynamics. In fact, that's kind of what ecology is in a way. Um, and we often see simplified versions of population theory in textbooks and plenty of experimental work has been done on population dynamics on various species all over the world since sort of the early-ish 20th century when ecology kind of came around. It's not really a, an old science as such. Uh, but a classic example of measuring pop population fluctuations is using resource availability as a predictor of population changes. And one of the most common resources looked at is food availability. So just for an example, say we have a species of beetle. Uh, there's plenty of beetles to choose from. If you, if you look, there's lots more beetles than just about everything else put together. And the larvae say, say the larvae need a tenth of a gram of food to have enough energy to pupate into an adult beetle. So if we have a gram of beetle food and 10 larvae, all 10 get enough food to pupate and become adult beetles. But what happens if there are 11 beetle larvae trying to feed on a gram of food? So uh -oh. classic, classic ecological wisdom would say that all 11 beetles are unable to complete their life cycle and they possibly die as a, as a result of the lack of food resources. Rather than what might be the intuitive thing is that one beetle will die and the other ones will live because that's not how insects function and this can be scaled up to larger scale populations and various resources can be substituted for food like shelter or habitat or eligible mates are commonly investigated resources in animal populations but even in these examples it's, sim it's a simplistic way to look at populations 
Uh, some animals, some individuals may have an advantage. In the example of the beetle larvae, for example, if some of the larvae eat faster than others or if some require less food, they might survive anyway. And that is, you know, that's always a, an interesting uh, twist on the, on the story. It's not always simply mathematical. Um, at the end of the 18th century, so we're talking 1798 here, an economist by the name of Thomas Malthus proposed that these kind of principles could be applied to humans. And ever since then, the concept of human overpopulation has been debated. Now, you've got to remember that in 1798, the world's population was less than a billion people. Thomas would be shocked at the size of the population currently. It's just about to tip over 8 billion right now. Uh, But more recently, in 1968, Paul Ehrlich, who is a scientist rather than an economist, warned that human overpopulation would cause widespread death as a result of malnutrition in the 1970s, and hundreds of millions of people would die. Now, the global population in 1968 was about three and a half billion people. By 1980, it was 4.4 billion people. So he updated his book with predictions that the same widespread famine would happen in the 80s, which also didn't happen if you look through the history books. So... Ehrlich himself was an entomologist specialising in butterflies and their co-evolution with plants. And he was quite well regarded in the field of Lepidopteran studies. But his foray into human ecological impacts has been criticised pretty much since it was published. Um, it was a, He was publishing a book outside of his field of expertise in an area that he wasn't really well versed in. And that's always was, an issue. Wasn't it called something like the population bomb or something like that or... It was called The Population Bomb, and it was a bestseller too. And it, it sort of kick-started a whole lot of environmental uh, movements around the world as well. But part of the problem with, with sort of overlaying ecology studies onto humans is that we don't really behave like animals in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, for example, we can migrate away from problems and we can migrate towards opportunities in ways that animal instincts don't allow them to do. We can actually predict things that will happen and plan to avoid them, which animals also don't often have the ability to do. Um, whether we're any good at that is, is a different question. We can also trade, and Malthusian economic theories are probably more relevant to us than comparisons to insects or other animals. Uh, but either way, the mass famines that have been predicted multiple times have not really happened. And in fact, large-scale famines have decreased while population has increased to its current level of almost 8 billion people. So um, in 1900, famine killed almost 30 million people worldwide. Uh, and more recently, when the population has been much higher, about eight times the size... Um, we see famine as in the lack of food killing only uh, a couple of million people possibly uh, when those outbreaks do happen. But of course, we can look at other resources than food and the Earth is a finite planet and, and many of the resources we use are non-renewable, especially those that are consumed by their use, like fossil fuels, which we use a lot of. Um, and that is obviously the case. But looking at sheer numbers of people doesn't give the full picture of consumption of resources by humans. 
it depends on the humans and the resources. So there's a lot of uh, studies of the world's population where we divide the world population into five equal parts. At, at the moment, that's about 1.6 billion people in each part. And the division is according to how wealthy they are. And we get a very different picture of human resource use. So the richest 20% of people, which is mainly the developed world, use more than three quarters of the world's resources on a yearly basis, from energy to goods like food and clothes and other, uh, you know, consumables that we buy um, every year. Now, the poorest 20% of people, so it's the same number of people, use only 1.6% of the resources annually every year. So, in other words, the world's human population could be many times larger than it is and still use less resources than we do now if people consumed less resources. I mean, that's pretty straightforward maths. Obviously, nobody is likely to want to give up on the lifestyle they have in that rich 20% of people. But the idea that absolute numbers of humans alive at any given time can be an indication of sustainability is a pretty flawed way of looking at the possibilities. And it's certainly not how we would approach it in an ecological term. So applying those ecological rules is not going to work for humans for all of the reasons that I've sort of mentioned already. Now, the easiest population growth to affect and slow down would be among the developing world where people currently use far less of the Earth's finite resources than developed countries. Did you have a question, Chris? Yeah, I had a question. Um, Like, it's it's interesting what you say. Now, obviously, there is a a lot of inequality there and, and two things, I suppose, when people talk about um, the effect of population, like one is a desire to lift everyone up to the level of the top 20%, which would then obviously consume much more resources. Um, but the other thing, I suppose, is when we look at when famine does kill large numbers of people, it often is in the developing world, where they are consuming per capita fewer resources, but it's still the most vulnerable to, um, to those impacts. Yeah, and I guess from a statistical point of view, they still have a massively increasing population. So even though they are affected by famines, it's it's probably other factors like lack of medical access and things that is causing those deaths rather than a direct lack of food. That's because fair. They, yeah. okay. they could trade with other countries and things if there, if there was the ability to do that. But they, they also can't be, you know, the, the wealthier you are, the more medicine you can afford as well. Hmm. Um, All those things you talked about earlier about the way that humans are able to avoid um, these issues, um, people who are at kind of the victims of inequality uh, are denied those opportunities, I suppose. That is, that is definitely true as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but as I was saying, the, um, if you look at the fastest growing populations, they are in the developing world, and those people are using less of the finite resources than developed countries. But population growth in developed countries is pretty much already negative if you use local birth rates as an indication. Um, Most developed nations have a birth rate under two, which is less than the rate of replacement of the the population. Um, And without immigration, developed countries would have falling populations already. So it's only because they have immigration that the population's increasing, which is 
has economic drivers to encourage immigration to keep the population growing, which helps the economic situation in those developed nations as well. Um, And the flow of people from other parts of the world shows that, as you said, Chris, many people want that lifestyle that we have in the developed world, and that is a possible cause for concern. But research has shown that economic development itself causes birth rates to fall over time as people in developing nations especially women, get more educated, they get access to medical treatment, they get access to contraception, uh, and birth rates drop off on their own without anyone having to actually directly intervene in in birth rate um, manipulation, I suppose, would be one way to look at it. So a recent publication by the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, uh, who's an Austrian organisation, suggests that the human global population will be half what it is now by 2200. That's a fair way off. If economic development continues at its current rate, and it will possibly be lower if more investment is made in those developing nations. So the key to probably bringing population under control is to encourage economic development and education in those developing nations as quickly as possible to bring the population down under its natural uh, or, or its, you know, uh, historical, I guess, um, parallels in developed nations. Um, one of the things I think this shows and, and the analysis that people have done is that human population patterns are not easily mapped using ecological science tools as the only analysis because Human behaviour is more complex than many other animals and the inequality of consumption may be more of a problem than the absolute numbers of people. And I think it's it's also a kind of a straw man because nobody is arguing that infinite growth of human population is not a problem. It, it clearly would be, but also it's very unlikely to happen in the way that it will just keep, you know, we'll, that we'll just keep multiplying forever. I think we just happen to be in the middle of a period of growth and eventually that may also fall off for, for other reasons. I think people generally just have to move away from systems that rely on perpetual increase of population uh, to improve economic growth And that will solve those problems that we have with population size and consumption in the end. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 
or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.